Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So we are in part eight of our series on the book of Acts, and we're looking at God's kingdom mission for the church. And we saw in Acts 1.8, if you want to go ahead and open your Bible, we're going to look at Acts 4, 1 to 22. But while we're getting there, we saw way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the outline of the whole book was laid out. The whole story is encapsulated there in 1, verse 8. And what Luke, the doctor, writes is that the gospel, the truth of the kingdom of God, the message about Jesus is going to go forth from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, friends, this is beginning to happen in the story that we're reading. Chapter 4 is going to show us what happens right before the gospel goes full force like a wildfire spreading all through the Roman Empire, all through the world in that day. But the church is met with resistance, and that's what we're going to see. We're going to see the first sign of opposition to the early church. And we're going to see chapter 4 today and then chapter 5, that the gospel of the kingdom is spreading and the Jewish leaders don't like it. Nor do the Roman leaders, for that matter. And these are the ones... If you remember, they are the ones who seven or eight weeks earlier had killed Christ, had rejected the Messiah, and now they're opposing his followers. And so what I've said from the beginning of looking at this book, we are prayerfully reading it and discussing it and spending extended time in the book of Acts because This book will equip us for the coming days. And this is sobering. From the beginning, Jesus said, if we are to follow him, we're to take up our cross and we're to expect opposition and suffering. And somewhere along the way, in the American church, we've lost that message. We think that we follow Jesus and there's a little bit of cross in there maybe a splinter or two, but the rest of it is Jesus is out to bless me and to make my life easier. And we're seeing in the book of Acts that that is not the truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you'll suffer. The Apostle Paul says it's through many trials and tribulations that we enter the eternal kingdom of God. And so, friends, as we look at this chapter, it's sobering. Because it's called normal Christianity. And that's why we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to the word of God because it's like going to the chiropractor. It straightens everything out. And we get contorted and twisted and we get twisted views of God, of ourselves, of what to expect. And the book of Acts is a reality check. This is what we should expect. Now when I say that, Is the early church walking around morose like they're attending a nonstop funeral, head down, dragging, kicking the dirt, 
woe is me, is that what we see with the early church? They were the most joyful, Holy Spirit-filled, unstoppable people that human history had ever experienced. That's us. So it's a two-fold message that we're going to encounter here. Yes, if we follow Jesus and we tell new believers this, you should expect to have opposition from your friends, from your colleagues, maybe from within your own family. Friends, it's normal Christianity. At the same time, as we're going to see here, the Lord gives abundant joy. And in those moments when there's opposition, he fills his church with the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't leave us alone. We're not miserable. We are joyful and unstoppable people. So we're going to see this fascinating story, at least part of it today, with Peter and John in Acts 4, 1 to 22. And we're going to see that they get arrested for preaching and healing in the name of Jesus. And we're going to look at four parts. We're going to look at their arrest. We're going to look at them before the council or the Sanhedrin where they're on trial briefly. We're going to look at a debate that happens in the council over them. And then finally, very briefly, we're going to look at the apostles being dismissed with a stern warning that they don't obey. So, Acts 4, 1 to 22. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And again, if you're new here, we treasure every word of Scripture. And so we read a chapter like this and do your best to focus on it. If your mind wanders, come back to it. Maybe even try to picture what's happening here in this stunning story. So, Father, as we look into your word, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that Scripture is like a love letter from our maker to us. So we just say, Father, speak to us in your love and your truth. And we welcome you, Holy Spirit, the great teacher. Open our minds and hearts. Renew us. Cause our hearts to burn. In the name of Jesus, amen. So Acts 4, 1 to 22. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. 
Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. When they saw the man who had been cured standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. They said, what will we do with them? For it is obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them praised God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of God. It's tough for me to get through that. Some beautiful, powerful things in there that should move us deeply. So this first section here in verses 1 to 4 is about Peter and John getting arrested. We saw in the previous chapter that the Lord used Peter and John to heal this man who would regularly sit on the temple steps. People would walk by him every day, but this day was his day for healing. And so Peter and John prayed for him. And Peter declared in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, and he did. And so this sent a shockwave through the temple grounds, the temple precinct, and people were running to them, right? These leaders that were observing all of this in the temple precincts, They confronted Peter and John and they said two things. Stop teaching and proclaiming Jesus and stop speaking about the resurrection of the dead, which was the essence of their message, right? And they said, okay, and they ducked their tails between their legs and went home, right? Is that how the story goes? No, they are emboldened. These are the leaders of the temple in verse 1 and 2 that are talked about. And unfortunately, there was corruption in this council. About 63 years before Christ, Rome took over Palestine, and so the office of the high priest and some of these other council positions were actually acquired by money, so you would pay in order to have a seat in this council. And the Sadducees, we've come across them before, haven't we, in the Gospels? They were an aristocratic, wealthy sect in Judaism, They were in cahoots with Rome politically, and they did everything they could to keep Rome from being angry with the Jews. And so they were compromised. And in fact, they were the ones that were coming after Peter and John saying, chill out, calm calm things down. You're causing too much disturbance here. Rome may come after us. But it was also the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. For many reasons, they just did not 
believed that there would be a resurrection and they didn't believe that the Messiah was coming. And so Peter and John were saying things that really got under their skin. It's interesting in the Gospels, who is it that's regularly opposing Jesus? Who's the other sect, the other group of people? That's right, the Pharisees. And so they're really taking back seat in the book of Acts. And now it's the other sect, the Sadducees, who are going to regularly persecute and oppose Jesus' followers. So under the pressure of rising persecution, we see while this is happening, look at verse 4. They're being opposed. They're being told to zip it, shut your mouth, quit teaching in the name of Jesus, quit healing, and what happens to the church at verse 4? They're growing. It's an interesting dynamic here, isn't it? And we get to see this worldwide over the last 2,000 years where there's opposition, where a government tells the church to shut up, to be quiet, to quit teaching in the name of Jesus. The church grows every single time. And that's true here. What started with 12 became 120, became 3120, and now they're over 5,000. Friends, the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ can't be stopped. And so we're seeing that here. Now, what's interesting here is they lay hold of them, they arrest them, and then at verse 5 and following, we see that they're going to appear before the Sanhedrin. And it's because it was the end of the day. And so they couldn't put them on trial and have formal discourse about it. They had to wait until the next day. And so what you find here the next morning at verse 5, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, they're meeting in a building near the temple, and they're going to put them on official trial. Now, most likely, it doesn't mention it by name, but most likely, this is the Sanhedrin, and that is the great council of the Jewish leaders. I've got an image up here just to help you picture That red arrow is pointing to the accused, so that could be Peter and John there. And you notice there's kind of a half circle there with 35 leaders on either side for a total of 70. And then right before the accused is the high priest. And so Peter and John would have been in a room similar to that room there on trial for their words and their actions about Jesus. And this was the great Sanhedrin, and they were not intimidated one bit. Look at the text here. And this could be kind of boring details, but Luke is a historian. So what he's saying here is verifying the account, and it's very important. We'll see that he's meticulously researched the history. He's spoken with the apostles, the followers of the apostles. He is very detailed and so he's naming people and it's very important for us to see and to even picture who was sitting in some of those seats he says Annas is the high priest at verse 6 Caiaphas John and Alexander and we don't really know anything more about John and Alexander but we certainly do about Annas and Caiaphas they are the ones who I mentioned earlier had put Christ to death who had turned him over to Rome Can you imagine what this council was thinking? Here we go again. 
Here we go again. We thought that we put an end to that whole Jesus movement. We put the guy to death. They were claiming that he was Messiah. We ended it. He was only 33 years old. His followers were scared to death. We quashed it. And here they are a couple months later, and these guys are back. The boys are back in town. And with new fire, new infilling of the Holy Spirit. I should say the guys and gals, huh? In that 120 and what they were swelling to, thousands of people now. And so you can imagine the great Sanhedrin, that council, was sweating bullets. Now, do you think Peter and John were surprised when this happened? Oh, no. Here we went out. We were proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus actually healed someone through us. Do you think they were surprised that now they were in court officially like Christ was? You think they were surprised? Certainly they were not. Jesus had told them in Luke 12. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples. Luke 12, 11 through 12. When, not if, when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, the authorities, do not worry about how you are to defend yourselves or what you are to say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. They weren't surprised at all. Jesus had told them, and then if they didn't get the message, he says again in Luke 21, verse 14 and 15, make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance. I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will able, be able to withstand or contradict. I moved because Jesus told them that opposition was coming, and he said, my spirit and my own self will give you all that you need. And friends, the same is true for us. I'm reading this this morning, and it's just dawning on me that we're actually the exception in the worldwide church. We have brothers and sisters, the majority of Christians in this moment are suffering greatly for Christ. We're the exception. We should be grateful. We're thankful for freedom of religion. We're thankful for a constitutional republic like the United States that's teetering right now under the weight of our own sin as a country, and so I'm sobered. Will we get to live in the freedom that we've known? Maybe. Will we, like most of the rest of the Christians throughout the world, experience opposition, persecution, maybe stand on trial? It's a possibility, friends. So as your pastor and your friend, your brother in Christ, I am compelled to get us ready. And if the Lord gives us reprieve in the coming days, wonderful. If we get freedom and our children have freedom and our grandchildren, praise the Lord. But if not, I must say we've got to prepare all saints. And that should wake us up. Again, it's not a doomsday message at all. It's a sobering biblical message. Do you agree with me? I'm not fabricating anything. I'm not coming up with anything. I'm sharing the truth of the book of Acts 
in this story. And friends, we have got to prepare ourselves. And so we make time for so many things. Do we make time daily for the Lord? Now is the time to do that. If you are messing around with life, making stupid decisions, and the Lord's been calling you, if you've been away, now is the time to come back to him. The scriptures say a time comes when it's possibly too late. Call on the Lord now while you may be saved. Amen? So Peter at verse 8 is filled with the Holy Spirit while this is going on. And we'll see time and time again in the book of Acts that there are multiple infillings of the Holy Spirit. And each and every time it's for a specific mission. They're not just filled with the Holy Spirit to have fun with one another, experience the joy of the Lord. It usually comes in a moment of opposition, and they're filled with the Spirit so that they can boldly proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done. So Peter, at verse 9, is living out what Jesus promised. Peter actually asks the council, are we here today because of something we've done in kindness? Because a man who had been paralyzed for 40 years, we learn, has been healed? Is that why we're on trial? So Peter, the former coward and Christ denier, now is in the center of the great Sanhedrin putting them on trial. And they're realizing in that moment, this uneducated, ordinary man is speaking wisdom they can't refute. What are they going to say? Yeah, you're on trial here for an act of kindness that all the prophets said to do. Take care of the poor. Take care of the weak and the marginalized. They, they had nothing to say, and Peter knew it. Peter and John were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Lord is putting them on trial. Then look at what Peter does in the following verses there. Peter doesn't just make stuff up or grab ideas from the air. He roots everything that he says in the Old Testament scriptures. He's full of the word of God. In that moment, he had done what King David said, hide the word of God in your heart. Hide the word of God in your heart and it can be accessed like a sword. And so the sword once again comes from Peter's mouth, the sword of the word of the Lord. And he says, he's quoting Psalm 118, verse 22, and he says, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders but he's actually the chief cornerstone. He's the cornerstone that keeps the whole building fitted together, and yet you rejected him. Can you imagine what these leaders were thinking? We have nothing to say. We have no way of refuting the wisdom of this man. He is a pain in the neck. I'm not sure how to say that in Hebrew, but I'm sure that they were thinking that quietly. What a pain. And then look at verse 12. Friends, this is one of the most important verses in the book of Acts, and probably it's a top 10 verse in the entire New Testament. Look at verse 12. I'm going to let you look at it for a moment there. There's salvation in no one else, says Peter. For there is no other name under heaven given among mortals, men and women, by which we must be saved. So this verse right here, crystal clear, this speaks of the absolute exclusivity 
of salvation at Jesus. Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, John, Mary, the mother of Jesus, none of these people can save you. Buddha, Muhammad, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, Jack Daniels, the Ben Franklins in your bank account, the good works in your moral bank account, none of it can save you. Only Jesus. Only Jesus Christ and faith in his name saves. Is this a popular message in 2022? Those of you in high school or college, if you point to a verse like this and share something like this with your teachers or with your colleagues at work, this is not a very popular idea. Is it there in black and white? Acts 4.12. Modern religious leaders don't like this. They bristle at it, as a matter of fact. They say that salvation comes through many sources and paths. It's called pluralism. They're a plural, a host of ways to reach God. And Jesus might be one of them, but there's a lot of others. And we can't offend those other people. So we must dilute the truth. It's right here. The apostle is saying salvation in Christ alone, friends. We've got to dust this off and revisit it. If we're faithful to Jesus, faithful to Scripture, faithful to the Word of God, this is part of it. It's an exclusive claim, isn't it? And what Peter is saying here is that there is salvation in no one else. What's interesting about this, he means many things by this, but he means literal physical deliverance, that word, salvation. By the way, those of you that are familiar with the healing ministry, sozo, it takes this word, a Greek word, sozo, that means healing. And it means at least a couple of things. One is literal physical deliverance. And so this man who experienced physical deliverance, he couldn't walk before And so in the name of Jesus, he experienced healing and was delivered from that previous way of living. He could move now. He could walk. He could have a job. He could have friends before he couldn't. So the name of Jesus physically changed his whole life. The word is going to be used later on in the book of Acts in chapter 27 when the apostle Paul and others are on a boat and they are literally saved from a storm that would have destroyed their lives. So it's physical, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's also spiritual. It's spiritual salvation. Those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus are saved. Acts 2.21. So in a sense, this healing of a man that Peter is on trial for, and he's pointing to, he says, this is a word picture for you. This man that was healed... 40 years lame from his mother's womb, hasn't been able to walk or move like the rest of you. It's a picture. Jesus healed him physically, but he's also now dancing and praising God and letting people know that he's been healed by the name of Jesus, so it's spiritual as well. The name of Jesus alone brings physical and spiritual healing. Amen? 
Friends, this is why we are armed with the gospel, the greatest news on the planet, healing in the name of Jesus. And it's both and, isn't it? Some folks are into salvation. Jesus saves, but they leave out the physical healing part. Is that the true gospel? No, it's both. He saves, he rescues, he transforms, he delivers from all addiction, all drug, all brokenness, all of it. And at the same time, he saves, reorients, changes the whole life. Look at verse 13. There's a debate that happens. Verses 13 through 17. The council is observing the boldness of Peter and John. And they are realizing we are getting schooled by an uneducated, ordinary pair of Christians here. What does it mean here? Uneducated literally means unlettered. Unlettered. That is, they had no formal training in the theology of the rabbis. They were ordinary, a second word. Look there. Verse 13. Not only are they unlettered, unformally trained, but they're common. And that means they don't hold any recognized position at all. These guys are not bigwigs. There's no clout to their name at all. And yet, they are bringing it to the Sanhedrin, and we can't refute them. These men, in other words, had not been to the top-tier rabbi university of the day. They had not been to the Yale, the Princeton, the Harvard-type schools of Jerusalem, and yet look at what is happening. To the most educated, the most lettered, the most extraordinary leaders in Jerusalem at the time. And look at the end of this phrase. It's absolutely beautiful. Look at the end of verse 13. They were amazed, and what did they recognize, church? They were companions of Jesus. They had been with Jesus. They had been schooled by Rabbi Jesus, sitting at his feet, learning how to read scripture, how to interpret it, how to apply it, and how to live it. So I want to say something here about all saints. I want to say a couple things. First and foremost, we emphasize here at this church that every single one of us can sit at the feet of Jesus Every day. Learning from him directly through the Holy Spirit. How to read, pray, interpret, and live Holy Scripture. Is this a privilege, church? It is a stunning privilege. You can go to Rabbi University every day. If you want to. If you'll enroll. Not audit. Not skip class. But say, I actually get to sit at the feet of Jesus as a church, in small groups, but also individually every day. As much as I want, I can attend class with the rabbi Jesus. And this is what leads to transformation. Having your mind and your heart renewed, having Jesus, as we were singing about this morning, make you new, fill you with love for your friends, your wife, your husband, your kids, the colleagues at work that you don't like, 
Sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus is what gives you the power you need. A second thing I want to just note here is that some of us may have formal training, like myself, others may be planning to go get formal training, and that is fine too. So we want to strike that balance. First and foremost, all of us can get formally trained by Jesus. And he can teach us the whole counsel of God, and we learn from one another in community, but it's nothing to be embarrassed about, too. Sometimes I find myself at times thinking all of that schooling, I'm an egghead. It can get in the way at times. I learned things. I was deconstructed in the whole process. And Lord, it's a real pain sometimes. But both of these are realities. Amen? And so some of you, we've got a couple that are going to be going to Oxford to study theology. That's a great thing as long as we guard our hearts because formal education is limited and it's seductive. How do I know? I spent 12 years in it. It subtly seduces you and makes you think, I know a little bit more than other people. I've read the philosophers. I've read the theologians. And it's a subtle, insidious thing that we have to guard against. Friends, we don't know much at all. We really don't. And we should be in school with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And these two guys were filled with the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of Scripture, and the love of God. So the council sees this man, verses 15 through 17, they see he's actually somehow, if you'll go back to that slide, they brought him in because he can walk now. Go back to the slide there. And he was standing somewhere in the center there. There's no explanation, but the healed guy is there as exhibit A. And the dude's been... As I mentioned last time, going bonkers, bananas, out in the courtyard jumping around, and they're going, ah, isn't that the guy that's been there for decades? What is happening here? And he's shouting, and all the people are celebrating. Irrefutable evidence that the name of Jesus saves and heals is in the great Sanhedrin. So the leaders end up telling Peter and John, leave the room. They deliberate. They couldn't deny the miracle, and the text is showing this. Someone may say, well, how do they know all this? Some great ideas. First of all, news spreads in small cities. So this word could have gotten out is one way. Another way is the Apostle Paul had inside connections with the Sanhedrin and leaders, and he probably was dialed in to what was happening in great detail. Therefore, Luke knew the details of what was happening. So let's end with this here. Verses 18 through 22, very quickly. The apostles are dismissed and warned. Verses 18 through 22. They call them back in. Look at verse 18. Zip it, guys. No more speaking, teaching. Quit this Jesus activity. And then look at what their response is. Look at verse 19. And friends, I want this to burn in our hearts right here. Burn in our hearts right here. What does Peter say? And John, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you 
rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. So there's respect here, but they're also saying we can't stop. Great Sanhedrin, great lettered men, great extraordinary leaders, we have seen and walked with the resurrected Jesus. And we can't stop. We have to obey God rather than any man or woman. We fear the Lord more than you. Is that in us? I want you to think for a moment here. Let's say that the day comes when you're told, tone it down. Or like the Chinese church, you can still do church, but don't mention the name Jesus. And actually, you'll have money from the government. We'll help you rewrite your scriptures to remove all the stuff that the Communist Party doesn't agree with, but it has to stop. And so many Chinese believers compromised and went with the government church, and then many said, absolutely not. We cannot stop proclaiming what we've seen and heard. And so you have revival in China, and the day may come when we're told, zip it, chill out. You can talk about God generically, but you can't mention the name of Jesus. Saints, will we stop? Will you stop? Will we obey God's word and our conscience that he's given us, just like John and Peter, or will we compromise? Who do we fear more? I'm asking you today, right now, who do you fear? Do you have the fear of man in your heart? The fear of woman? The fear of government? The fear of the political? The fear of punishment? The Lord wants to drive that out and replace it with love. What scriptures say? Perfect love drives out fear. And then it's replaced with a clean, holy, unstoppable fear of the Lord God Almighty. So Lord, we ask, we thank you for your word. And we ask whatever you put in Peter and John and those other men and women, the believers, we ask for it today. Church, why don't we stand? Lord, I just even ask now, If this is moving you and you want the fear of the Lord to be unstoppable, why don't you put your hands out? Lord, we ask now on this Sunday that you would drive out the fear of man, the fear of woman, the fear of government, the fear of consequences, and fill us with holy courage, holy fear, the burning fire of your word in us, Lord, because we need it. 